0: following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And ye Thank mm-hmm. you. I once I was, once was, most for So you must humble thyself thyself in this world.
1: To Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia, with Pastor
2: Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre recorded. A death blow to pride. A death blow to pride. Almighty God, there is a cancer that eats away at the body of Christ, even here at the National Prayer Chapel, and its name is pride. And I ask today that you would deal with this cancer by pouring in your oil and your wine, and by binding up our wounds. Lord, put our feet on a straight and narrow path, and don't let us wander off into the habitation of demons. Mighty God, come and meet us now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You've heard about the old-time camp meeting, the sawdust tent floor. And the old-time preacher who was called to do the preaching, he was a guest. He was from out of town. And when he arrived, he immediately went to the pulpit and delivered one of the most powerful sermons anyone could recall in many years. It was convicting. It was cutting. It was right to the point. Everyone was talking about it and saying, If that's what this preacher is going to preach, what's going to happen at the next service? Even more people came to the second service to hear this wonderful preacher. He stood before the congregation and he was an elderly man. He fumbled a bit with the scriptures and then he began to preach. And everyone recognized that it was the same sermon he'd given that morning. No one wanted to embarrass the old preacher though. So they gave him the amens. They applauded. And after the service was finished, they just heaped upon this dear brother all kinds of praise. Thank you, dear brother. This is a wonderful sermon. And they all wondered what's going to happen tonight. They got there that evening. The old preacher stood up to start preaching. It was the same sermon. Some people afterwards confronted the old preacher and said, Preacher, you've preached that three times. He said, I've got to preach it tomorrow too until we we start putting it into practice. You didn't get it yet. I feel a little bit like that today. I feel like we've talked about pride so many times. And yet I still find pride in my heart. And I still find the devastating work of pride in our fellowship. So I have to keep talking about it. And saying, Jesus, would you change this in my heart? Would you take this love of being seen from my heart? Would you take this love of being successful from my heart? Would you take this love of being any kind of authority? from my heart? Would you take this love of anger from my spirit? Would you take from my heart this desire to be a victim? From my heart, all of it is pride. This desire to be loved. This desire to be pleased. This desire to be recognized. All of this is pride. And it cuts away at the body of Jesus, and it separates one from another. And we see that then walked out in the way we relate to each other. I watch this fellowship. I watch with interest to see who talks with, with whom. I, I watch to see who, who wants to be with certain people, and if they can't be with those certain people, then they're disappointed and they're gone. I watch as one person, if they can't talk to the person they want to talk to, they will condescendingly speak with another brother or sister. I watch as some want to talk to me but don't want to talk to Pastor Jan. It's interesting how we decide who we want to be and what we want to be. I want to tell you today, all of that's pride. I don't come to this church to be invited to do something. I don't come to this church to be invited to a social. I don't come to this church to be spoken to. I don't come to this church to be made into something wonderful. I come to this church for one reason. Jesus. And I'm asking Jesus to get me on the straight and narrow path. I'm asking Jesus to in every way to straighten out my family situations. I don't know about you, but I'm in a, I'm in a terrible place when I look at what's going on with my grandchildren, my nieces and my nephews. There's trouble in the Greenley family. There's brokenness in the Greenlee family. There's bitterness in the Greenlee family. Now, maybe my family's just different than your family, but I know that bitterness and that brokenness comes straight out of the pit of hell. I know that it's not of the heart of Jesus. I know that it's not what the Lord wants for my family. I know it's what the devil has done as he has tried to break us apart and make us strangers to each other. That's the work of darkness. It's not the work of the gospel of Jesus. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not love and joy and peace and long-suffering. No, it's anger and bitterness and cursing and I'm this and I'm that and you're that and blaming and accusations, and all of that gets wrapped up in the family deal. And all of that has its root in pride. Pride. Now I ask you honestly today, have you been united with Jesus Christ? And does that mean something to you? I know it does or you wouldn't be in this house. Do you gain any comfort from Jesus Christ? Does naming the name of Jesus bring comfort to your soul? It is for many of us the only comfort we have. If we do not have Jesus, we don't have anything. Do you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Do you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Most of us in this house would say, yes, some of you do not have fellowship with his spirit because you've been warring against him. You've been angry with him. You've been angry at God. You've been casting him aside and cursing his name. But most of you in this house today have comfort In fellowship with the Spirit, in fact, there's a tenderness and there's a compassion in your heart because of what the Holy Spirit is beginning to do in you. I praise God for this. So we find in Philippians, the second chapter, that the Apostle Paul is saying this. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. By being like-minded. In other words, to seek after the same thing. To seek after the same thing for your brother and sister that you seek after for yourself. Not indulging in your own agenda, or your own plans, but in your heart, being like-minded with the body of Christ. Now, the National Prayer Chapel is a very simple congregation in this sense. We're not building an empire here. We're not trying to become something great. We don't have grand plans. All we have are a group of people who have said we want to come together in the name of Jesus and we want to seek his face with all of our heart. We want to wait upon him, we want to trust him, and we want to pray. We want to learn how to walk in the ways of Jesus. And we want to pray for Washington, D.C., that God will sovereignly bring revival to this city. Now, I freely tell you today that one of the greatest challenges in my life has been to touch the throne of God in the prayer closet and see things in the physical realm change where I don't mix my fingers in it, I simply pray, and out of the prayer closet, God redeems a person's life. So that I can't claim the credit for that person's salvation, but instead, it all belongs to Jesus, and all I've done is pray. And by praying in the prayer closet, the physical realm has changed Now, I want to make an even bolder assertion that your maturity level or your walk with Christ, as far as I am concerned, is defined by what happens in the physical realm when you go to your prayer closet. If you go to the prayer closet and you pray and nothing happens, it's because you haven't confessed your sin yet, you may have confessed some of them, but you haven't confessed at all yet. You're not clean before God yet. God still has you in time out. When we go into the prayer closet and we begin to open our hearts before God, something should happen in the physical realm that would not happen if we didn't go to that prayer closet. And so there are brothers and sisters that I'm praying for. Some of you are here in this house today because some of us prayed for you. You're not here because you're a wonderful person. You're not here because you've got it all together. You're here because Jesus got a hold of you and said, you get over here. This is where you're supposed to be. That's because of a prayer closet where somebody was on their face before God on your behalf. And because of that, you're here. Now, pride would rise up and say, I don't need to go to the prayer closet to make things happen in the physical realm. I'll just go do it, thank you very much. But if you've walked very long with Jesus Christ, you've discovered that everything you try to do will fall to the ground and will be trashed. It will not be effective it'll just stir up more trouble. But when you cry out to the Lord in the prayer closet and He hears that cry because you've confessed your sins and you're clean before God, then things happen outside of the prayer closet. That's what Paul is saying here. Being like-minded so that as a congregation we can go into the prayer closet together. And when we go into the prayer closet together, something should happen in the physical realm. And if it doesn't, we've got to come back and deal with issues like pride again. That's why we have to come back and deal with it again. Right now at the National Prayer Chapel, we are a barren people. And it's out of that barrenness that the Lord God is disciplining us as a fellowship so that we will allow Him to purge us of pride so we can be heard in the prayer closet. You understand what I'm saying to you. We don't come with different minds. We come with the mind of Christ. And we come for the salvation of the lost. We come for the dying. We come because our hearts have been moved upon by the Holy Spirit, not because we happen to be great people. Because we're not great people. If we get up on the pedestal, you put somebody like me on the pedestal and, Oh, Pastor Ray, well then I'm going to do something that will crash it and then you'll turn away in bitterness. It's Jesus who is lifted up on the cross. And when he's lifted up on the cross, he said he'd draw all men unto himself. It's not lifting up your pastor that will draw men to Jesus Christ. It's lifting up Jesus. Now, some of us, when we think we've not been lifted up adequately, begin to pout. Because all of us want to be lifted up. Let's be honest. All of us want to be lifted up. We want to be recognized. We want to be treated right. We want to be spoken to appropriately. We want to be invited to the right places. We want what we want. And social scientists all tell us that the first question in any group of people, when, when a group of people comes together, the first question that the secular pagan person asks Is there going to be a place for me there? Are they going to accept me? Will I be be accepted there? Then the second question that secular pagans know is going to be asked is this. Who's going to be the greatest? And where am I going to come on the pecking order? All of you aren't farmers. Do you know what the pecking order is? In a chicken coop, one chicken, nobody pecks him. He pecks all the rest. And they form a pecking order. And the pecking order, most powerful, next powerful, next powerful. When I did seminars in corporate, I used to get a people together, the board members all together, and I'd say, now let's set up what the pecking order is in your organization. They'd look at me. I'd say, yeah, there's a pecking order on this board. Now, everybody line up. And they'd line up. The CEO, right down. I'd say, no, we're not going to do this by title, we're going to do this by reality. What's the pecking order in this organization? Who doesn't ever get pecked here? You know what? In some organizations, the secretary is at the top and the CEO's down on the bottom. The pecking order. The confidential secretary often is the one who can peck anybody in that place and nobody dares touch her, because she holds the keys. Well, in a church, it's very easy to begin asking the question, well, nobody really likes me here. I'm not included here. And a victim mentality can set in very quickly. Innocently, but very quickly. You know, Pastor Ray didn't talk to me on the way out of church today. He must be mad at me. And then a whole long scenario can begin to be worked out. The next week, Pastor Ray, he's mad at me. I'm not, I didn't even think about it, but I'm mad at them. Or somebody else is mad at them. No. Brother Kurt didn't speak to me. He turned and stood and spoke to somebody else. So Brother Kurt must be mad at me. Well, it's this ugly question. Is there a place for me here? Let's put that to rest right now. There is a place for you in the heart of Jesus Christ. Has nothing to do with your social standing. It has nothing to do with your skills. It has nothing to do with how much money you have. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is. So if you ask the question, is there a place for me here? The answer is in Jesus. Now you want to raise the question, okay, I'm going to be accepted here. What's the pecking order? Who do I get to peck and who do I not get to peck? You don't get to peck anybody. You're at the bottom of the pecking order. And Jesus is at the top and there's nobody in between. You understand? We all stand before Jesus Christ. He is our authority. He is our head. We submit unto him and then we come into like-mindedness so that we're not struggling with these issues of, you know, are they going to like me? Am I going to make a contribution? Maybe I better show off a little. Maybe I better put somebody in their place. Maybe I better... You don't have to do any of that here. All you have to do here is love Jesus and be sold out. I can't tell you how many times The church has broken my heart. I've been hurt more and worse in church than any place else in my entire life. I've been abused more by the church than by anybody else. I've been financially wiped out more by the church than anybody else. I did my mother's funeral in a denominational church that owes me thousands of dollars and they said, We owe it to you, Ray. If you want to collect it, take us to court. Sue us. And the Lord said, You would sue my people? And I said, Are they your people? Now, I suspect that there's not a one of us in this house that could not tell some kind of horror story about belonging to the church. Some of us have been fired by the church. All kinds of things have happened to us in the church. All I can tell you is that it's still the apple of God's eye. That it's imperfect, that it's stench rises to heaven, that it has all kinds of mistakes in it, that none of us have done what we should have done. And yet for all of that, it's still covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I know the only way to make this church a safe place is for you to have your eyes on Jesus Christ and not on Pastor Ray, not on our elders, not on anyone else in this fellowship, but to have your eyes on Jesus. And the reason you come to the church is not to be somebody. Not to be somebody, but because Jesus Christ is somebody. Come to church to say, how can I join? with brothers and sisters in the throne room of God to touch the heart of God for the salvation of the lost and the dying. That's why I come here. I tell you the truth, my life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. I'm a different person today than I used to be by the glory and the grace of Jesus I won't go through the litany of all the evil things that I used to do, but believe me, I would say I'm the chief of sinners in this house. And by the grace of God alone, I'm washed by the blood. I'm purified by the blood. I'm made clean by the blood. I've been restored by the blood. There's no longer bitterness in my heart. There's no longer anger in my heart. There is purity in my spirit because of Jesus. Now, that allows me no room to be proud. It allows me no room to look down on my brother or sister. It allows me no room to throw stones at my brother or my sister. Instead, it causes me to fall on my face and weep before God and praise Him and thank Him for His mercy and His kindness and His grace to me. For I didn't deserve it and he gave it freely. So Paul is saying to us, be like-minded, having the same love, having the same agape love, having the same self-sacrificing love, one for another. Now if I come to my brother Bill and I say, look, we've got a problem, brother Bill, because you're not treating me the way you need to treat me. Is that agape love? No. Agape love is self-sacrificing love. My question has to be, how can I sacrifice my life for my brother Bill? How can I sacrifice my life for my brother Ed? How can I sacrifice myself? And my heart's concern has to be, How can we as a fellowship sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? Or in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the Lord tells us to begin to pour out our love. What needs to identify us as a congregation is the pouring out of our love one for another. So we have a funeral going to be a very difficult funeral because many who will come to this funeral have many questions in their heart about their own place with God some are a long distance from the presence of Jesus they feel condemned they feel like there's no hope they feel caught in the bondage of chains of sin And so we'll pour out our love for them, that they could experience Jesus. See, it's being of like mind, and then it's pouring out an agape love, our sacrificial love, one for another. But see, it's not just here at church, it also goes home. I'm not looking for how my wife can serve me, I'm looking for how I can serve my wife. The heart is to pour out love. That breaks pride. Pride cannot survive where there is sacrificial love being poured out. Pride is by its very nature self seeking, self concern. I am the center. Self-sacrificing love puts the other at the center. All the accusations are gone. All the blame is gone. All the bitterness is let go of. All the wickedness is confessed. And now it's how can I serve? Not what can I get, but how can I give? That changes the picture. If you go to your job on Monday... And you go into that workplace and you say, how can I make a difference in this house? How can I make a contribution in this house? Not, what am I getting paid here? How am I being treated here? Who's for me and who's against me? Now that's all pride. That's pride. Self-sacrificing love says that wherever I go, I pour myself out. And when someone misuses me, when someone speaks harshly to me, I don't retaliate. But I say, Jesus, you hear that brother's hurt or that sister's hurt. Lord, you see what's happening. I give it to you. That's why Thursday night we said our place has to be on our face before God. Crying out to the Lord. Lord. Making a change in the physical realm by our time spent in the prayer closet. Quickly, he goes on. Being one in spirit and purpose. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain pride. Vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, what was Christ's attitude? This is the incredible passage of Scripture that theologians refer to as the cascade of God's love. And let me outline it for you. The cascade of God's love is revealed here in the book of Philippians is that Jesus Christ was equal with God. But he did not consider his being equal with God something he should grasp at and try to maintain. In other words, he was not trying to maintain a position. I mean, what would you think? if I as your pastor tried to prove to you what a great pastor I was, you'd say, what's going on? It would discourage your hearts. If I began to, to lift up myself and let Jesus down, I know what would happen. You all would leave. You would flee You've been to those places. You've seen the result. The first step for Jesus was to say, yes, I'm God, but I'm going to let go of being God. I'm not going to claim that. I'm not going to hold on to that. And I'm going to allow myself to be created in the womb of a woman, created lower than the angels. And so he was created a man. But he could have said, okay, I'll be a man, but I'll be a strong man. But no, he was created as a servant man. So he said, okay, I won't cling to being God, and I won't cling to being man. I'll be a servant. But then he said, that's not enough either. I'm going to also die. And he could have said, I must die a glorious death on the battlefield, defeating my enemies. I'm going to die fighting the Romans. But he didn't do that. He said, no, I'm not going to cling to being a servant. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to die in honor. I'm going to die on a cross. There was not anything in Jesus that tried to maintain his position. And every time he was moved by the Father to a lower position, he said, it's all right. I'm not going to cling to that higher position. I mean, can you imagine yourself being brought into a banquet and you're seated at the right hand of the host at the place of honor and suddenly someone comes and whispers in your ear, could you, would you mind moving down one? Would you move down one? Would you move down? Would you move out to the kitchen? Oh, you know what? could you move out on the back patio? Would you leave that house and say, I'm not going to eat in this house? If this is how they're going to treat me, if they don't know how to treat me as I deserve to be treated. We just went through this in our house. We had the family all over. There wasn't room at the main table. So we had to ask our son-in-law, if he would mind eating at the kitchen table. Boy, I did that with fear and trembling. I didn't know what I'd find in Jeff's heart. You know what he said? I'd love to sit with the kids in the kitchen. Is there anything else I can help you with? Jan just gave him a hug. He could have gotten angry. He didn't. I know why. Because Jesus is taking over his heart. The old Jeff would have walked out. Where you begin to walk with Jesus is where you no longer hold on to your rights anywhere. Anywhere. You don't say, my wife has to treat me this way. My kids have to treat me that way. My husband has to speak to me this way. I have to have a certain privilege here. You better respect me the way I want to be respected. No, all of that goes when we begin to come into the hands of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we give up all of our rights. We give up our right to make money the way we want to make money. We give up the right to possess what we think we want to possess. We give up the right to be seen as we want to be seen. We give up the right to exercise authority. We give up having things go our way. We just let go of it. Now, Please hear me. Some of you have been under the stern discipline of the Lord, as I have been. And sometimes the ways of God seem so painful and so difficult. But you know what I've discovered on this walk? The ways of God are only painful. The ways of God are only embarrassing when I think I'm somebody. If I'm willing to let go of being somebody, the ways of God are not hard. If you think you're the bread earner for your family, then you're going to do what you have to do to be the bread earner. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you let go of being the bread earner, and you say, your broken body is all I need. Now, where would you have me go and work, Jesus? And what would you have me do? And I'm on my way. And you walk into that place as a servant, not as a master. Now, this servant-master thing is big. Because some of you, like me, grew up in a family where you didn't have much else except respect. Okay, I don't have the car, I don't have the house, but don't mess with me. You punch me, I'll punch you back harder. I mean, some of us grew up defending our pride. Well, and then Jesus says to me, Go ahead and let that pride go. I say, What? What? Be a servant? I've been a servant all my life, Jesus. I'm tired of being a servant. Let me be a master for a little while. No. You were a servant before because you were sold out to sin. Now you're a servant sold out to Jesus. Do you understand there are only two places to be? A servant to sin or a servant to righteousness. This whole illusion that we're masters is a lie. We're not masters of anything. Satan is the master and Jesus is the master. And we're going to serve one of the two. And we have to make a decision. If we're going to follow after Satan, he will give us the illusion that we can hang on to certain things. In the end, we're going to lose it all. It's going to burn in the fire of hell. Jesus comes right up front and he says, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to be master of anything. But I'm going to give you a mansion for eternity. And now that's a switch, isn't it? How am I going to be a servant forever and live in a mansion forever? That seems to be an oxymoron. Something wrong there. Watch. Watch. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And my Bible says I'm being given a seat beside Jesus Christ as a co-heir for eternity. But I tell you, the only thing that will make me safe to be a co-heir with Christ is to have all pride broken and all arrogance removed and to sit on that seat of authority with Christ as a servant. Anything else, and Satan will rise again. And this time, that's not going to happen. Because we will have all the evidence of what happened with Satan. When he made the transition in his spirit, he said, I will no longer serve the living God. I will arise and I will be God. You see, this is the wonder of heaven. The Father says, I serve Jesus. Jesus says, I serve the Father. The Holy Spirit says, I serve Jesus. and the Word says Jesus is the Spirit. Three in one. They're a ball of service. They are defined by a heart of service one to another. So Jesus is now at the very end of his ministry on the earth. They're in the upper room. They're all waiting for the servant to show up. The slave that's supposed to come in and wash their feet doesn't show up. Peter and John have made the arrangements. By rights, if they have not made proper arrangements, Peter should get up and take his robe off and wash everyone's feet. But that would not be becoming, because he plans on being the second highest in the government of heaven. And John, John will not do it because he's leaning on the breast of Jesus. He's loved by Jesus. And anybody loved by Jesus has got to have a special place in heaven. So he's not going to move. He's where he wants to be. He's in the catbird seat. He's where mama wanted him. Remember, mama said, get to his right. Sit close to Jesus, then you'll get power. Jesus said, can you drink the cup? Oh, sure, I can drink the cup. Not a problem. Well, now he's not willing to drink the cup of servanthood. He's unwilling to drink the cup of servanthood. He wants to drink the cup of being master. So Jesus arises from the table and disturbs John's place and rattles Peter. And he goes and takes off his outer garment and he becomes a slave. And he takes up the towel and girds his waist and he pours the water in the basin. And now he goes to these feet that have not been sanitized, dirty from the travel. And Peter said, you're not washing my feet. You're not washing. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no place with me. In other words, you can't have a place with Jesus if you don't accept his service. And you can't have a place with Jesus if you don't serve. He said, now that I've done this unto you, the least of my brethren, go do the same thing unto others. Whose feet have you been washing? You know, it's a real easy thing to point out somebody's stinky feet. You ever been in a room where somebody takes their shoes and socks off and their feet stink and the whole room is filled with a stench? And you want to say, get out of here, go wash. Dirty feet. Boy, is that easy to do in the church. Somebody makes a mistake. The filth of their mistake fills the air and you can smell it everywhere. And you act like you don't see it. But you're saying in your heart, I wish they'd get their act cleaned up. Wish they wouldn't act like that. Don't embarrass us. We're the national prayer chapel. What? Get a basin and go to washing. Gird a towel. Get it cleaned up. You know, it would be easier to come and say, don't come in here with dirty feet again. That's what we're accustomed to doing. If you're going to come in and be a part of our club, then you'd be like us. Jesus says, take that basin, kneel down at your brother's feet and wash his precious feet and clean him up. Got dirty feet today? I do. I'm praying oh God open a fountain Open a fountain of cleansing for our hearts. Wash us and make us clean. Mm. Lord Jesus, break this pride in my heart. Break this pride in the National Prayer Chapel. Oh, Lord God. would you step into this place and would you wash our dirty feet? Lord, wash me all over. Oh, Jesus, teach me how to wash my brother and sister's feet. Teach me not to be critical or harsh. Teach me not to undercut Or to gossip. Oh God. Teach me how to wash my brother and sister. With your love and with your mercy and with your blood. And Lord I just plead your blood right now. Over this house. Lord we are undone. And my trust and my confidence is in your blood. Have mercy, O God. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Oh